Tonight we're going to talk about that wonderful little topic. You know, when you get together with your family for Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is one of those topics that you just want to bring up. Hey, let's talk about slavery. Let's talk about masters and slaves. I mean, what else could be more just comforting and a warm blanket to our souls than to discuss the enslavement of people? Oh, thank you, Paul, for this passage. I want to talk with you about this one, and I want you to know a couple things before we get into this. One of the reasons that we're going to look at this tonight is because I believe, and I think you do as well, that Paul is right when he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, not just portions of Scripture. And so you need to know that it is my commitment as your teaching minister to not skip the prickly passages. Now, I may sweat a bit, my voice may crack when we go through the prickly passages, I may get nervous, but we will go through them because God's Word is not only true, God's Word is good. Amen? And so, what I want us to do is to not be afraid of the text, but to get to know the text and dig deeper into the text because as we do, is it possible? Just real quick, let me ask you this. How many of you have noticed in your study of God's Word that you can read something once, ten times, a hundred times, and you will see things in the tenth, the fifteenth, the hundredth reading, and you go, oh my word, how did I miss that before? By the way, this should encourage you that it is true, God's Word is what, church? Living and Well, one of you knows the answer to that. Living and what? Active. Okay, Uh, by the way, okay, I know it's Wednesday night. Here's what I would like for you to do. Before I do anything else, look, I work very hard to prepare, and and, and you can go to sleep in just a minute, but if you'll stay awake, go ahead and just sort of poke someone next to you. I'm not going to talk until you poke someone. Go ahead, poke someone. (laughs) Be careful where you poke, but just poke someone real quick. And say, wake up, because we're going to kind of do this together, okay, family? Can we, is that okay? Can we do this together? Otherwise, this is going to be a real boring hour. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this because we believe there's good stuff in God's Word, even ones that are difficult. Now, a couple things we need to deal with. When you read your Bibles, a couple rules to go by. And if you want to jot this down somewhere, whether it's in your Colossians journal or on a piece of paper or somewhere else, this may be worth uh, remembering. And many of you know this if you've been Bible students for any length of time. Number one, context matters. How many of you have entered a conversation with someone and you did not have the context, so you didn't know what they were talking about? My wife is sitting right here on the front row, and and as much as I try to give context, sometimes in my conversations with her, I will not explain the first half of the conversation. I will just give her the punchline to what I am thinking. Are any of you married to someone like that or know someone who just kind of tells you the last part of the comments, but they don't give you the reason or the explanation? My mom and dad would joke about this. Dad would say, you know... In the middle of, you know, dinner or something, mom would be eating and she'd just go, so I told him it would be okay. 
And dad would go, who, what, when, where, how, why? And she'd go, oh. And then she'd kind of give the story of what she'd been thinking about before she then said her comment. So understand, context matters not only in your conversations with people here, but when you read the Bible, understand the context. What came before it, what came around it, both in the Bible as well as culturally. Now in the scriptures... The book of Colossians, we've said, our big sort of so what is that Colossians, it's all about who, church? It's all about Jesus, okay? So Paul, everything he says, including this passage, is somehow, some way going to go back to Jesus Christ. So hang with me, because there is going to be context we don't want to miss. The second thing, the second rule of reading your Bibles, and there's more, but these are the two I want you to know tonight. First one is context matters. The second one is this. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for your edification, but Paul did not sit down and write, Dear Gary, I'd like to inform you on things going on in the prison here in in Rome. Rather, it was written to a particular people in a particular time, in a particular place, with particular problems and challenges. So when we read it, understand you and I are reading someone else's mail and we need to be aware of the cultural and setting differences. Okay, so context matters. And number two, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So when we come to texts that are difficult, we need to be thoughtful when we address them. Now, one of the reasons I'm kind of giving a little bit more setup is this. When it comes to interacting with people, and by the way, just so you know, one of my favorite things to do is to visit and spend time with non-church folk. And and frankly, my all-time favorite group are those who weren't even once upon a time in the church, but those who like never stepped foot in the church. Because the conversations tend to be more real than ones with church people. Let me give you an example. On Sunday, you will be walking down the hall. And you will ask someone as they pass by, how are you doing today? And what do they say, church? Fine. Or if you're in certain churches, they'll say, I'm blessed. You know, it's a little more holy sounding. You know, fix the halo. They just keep walking. Now, the truth be told, if you were to ask them more specifically, how are you doing? And you were to have an honest conversation, how many of us know we would share more details and it wouldn't just be fine? So, when it comes to dealing with non-church folks, sometimes I get more honest conversations. And when they talk about why they don't follow Christ, I usually get two reasons. And you may get these as well. Number one, they'll talk about the hypocrisy of the church. Oh, Christians, they're just hypocrites. They, they just don't really practice what they preach, and they just don't behave the way that they say. So, I'm not going to follow any religion or be a part of any group that says one thing but does something else. And that one, I think, is such a straw man. My point is, hey, Christians are not better. We just have been saved by a good Savior. And so that is what's going on there. But then the other one that they often run to is they will say things about the Scriptures. They'll say, well, I just can't follow a God whose book includes things like this. How regressive how oppressive, and so I can't, I'm just not going to fall, I can't be a part of that. And so I think that's a little bit more legitimate concern because the idea is if you can undermine the scriptures, the authority under which we stand, if you can undermine the scriptures, then all of a sudden you don't have to take seriously the claims of Jesus, what it means to follow Christ, the life of a Christ follower, and all those things. So when we come to problematic passages, there are three responses. The first one 
is to avoid it. That's what many churches do. They just avoid it. The second one is to reject it. We're just going to outright say, nope, I can't believe it, can't buy it, I'm done. And the third one, and the one we're going to kind of go through tonight, is we want to learn from it. Not reject it, not avoid it, but learn from it. So, why is slavery such a difficult conversation for us to have? I want to kind of go through some history here just to give context, because like I said, context matters. When you and I hear the word slavery, what do we think of when we think of slavery? American slavery. So if you're like me, you have a mental picture of what slavery is. You have a picture of someone originally from Africa in the sweltering southern heat picking cotton or tobacco. Is this not sort of what we think of when we think of slavery, church? And in fact, if we kind of want to walk through the history, just so we're all on the same page, I'm going to kind of, I want to belabor the point so we kind of get this. Don't worry, we're going to get into some really good practical stuff here, but we've got to get through the background here so we don't dismiss God's word. So when we think of slavery, it all kind of rolls from European colonialist slavery, which by the way has its roots all the way back in about 1540. In fact, if you look back in our collective past, Europe, specifically Britain, did not have slaves for most of history. They were sort of late into the game when it came to slavery. The first recorded instance of British slavery was in 1540 when a man hijacked a ship containing slaves and instead of releasing the slaves, he sailed the ship down to the Caribbean and sold those people into slavery. Queen Elizabeth, when she heard about this, was furious. She said, and I quote, That is what the Catholics do, not us. Now, she was talking about Spain and Portugal. Because in that day, Spain and Portugal did deal in slaves. So, fast forward a few years. Britain overthrows Spain and Portugal in the Caribbean. And, in, and what happens? They go in, they kind of abolish the slave trade, but they begin to discover there's this magical substance in the Caribbean that they don't have in Europe. It's white, and it tastes really good, especially if you want to make sweets or put it in your coffee. What substance might we be thinking of, church? Sugar. The sixth major food group, Right? Right after fat. Okay, so you have sugar. Now, in Europe, they don't have sugar. They have honey. And so they begin to have this moral dilemma. We like sugar. What do we do to get sugar? So they sent a bunch of Irish over to the Caribbean to work. Here's the reality. And I heard someone else make this comment. I thought it was great. So apropos, have you ever seen an Irish person? I am white. They are whiter than me. When they were in the sun, they didn't do as well. In the heat and in the work, and over a period of about 100 years, the British began to realize that they cannot get the same produce, the work, out of these people as they could with a different person group or people group. And so over a period of about 100 years, they began to import slaves to work so they could have sweets. In fact, one of the... There's sort of a theological poet by the name of, let me make sure I get this right, uh, Macon. He says this in sort of a satirical way. He writes, oh, that we should set them free. But then 
how would we get the sweets for our tea? And he was being satirical saying, we are selling people's lives so we can get our sweets. So understand, colonial slavery was about, originally, about sugar, not about cotton and tobacco. That came when we settled into the new world, when we began to develop in America. And so now we imported slaves to work here for the very same reason, primarily from Africa, some from China. And so this is our backdrop. Now let me give you a few things here. A few distinctives. If you kind of want to think about American slavery, there are some distinctives here. And these are not good. Let me be very clear. And by the way, before I go, one more syllable. This was evil in American history. This is the black eye on our past. And and I want to be very clear about that here, and I know you feel the same way. But I do want us to make sure we understand context. So, a few things here. Number one, when we think of the distinctives, what made this American slavery, number one, it was race-based. It was primarily from one ethnic group, and it was... Very clearly identifiable. I mean, if you, you would look at someone and you know, free or slave, by the color of the skin, what they wore, as well as their socioeconomic status. It was race-based. Second thing, when we think about American slavery, is that it was for lifetime. It wasn't for a small period of time. There wasn't some sort of contractual agreement that said, after I've worked for this amount of time, I'm free. But it was a lifetime appointment. Number three, so it was race-based. It was lifetime. Number three, they were treated as possessions, not as people. In fact, we have documents of uh, the wills that were written during that period of American's history. And in the will, you would have someone say, to you know, the, 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 uh, the father or the leader of the household, when he's writing his will to the next of kin, he would write something to the effect of, and we have documents saying, I bequeath my cattle and my slaves. They were treated as equals in that way, just another possession. Number four, it was built on the slave trade and kidnapping. Okay? It's built on slave trade and kidnapping. Now, here's what you need to know. I want to show you three passages of Scripture from the Bible um, about this, because you need to understand when I say that this is evil, wrong, bad, this isn't Josh just giving an opinion, but there are some very clear teachings in the New Testament I want you to see. So go with me quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I promise we're going to get practical. We're going to come out of this in just a moment, but... We want to make sure we're all together on this. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, look with me. And by the way, when you get to 1 Timothy chapter 1, let me know by saying amen. We got some over here. Any more amens? All right, keep flipping. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see this. This is Paul writing, by the way, the same man who's talking about slaves and masters here is about to say something that we need to hear. So this isn't, this isn't two different authors speaking, same author, but listen to what he says, beginning in verse 8 and, uh, through 10. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. 
Verse 9, we also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. And he's going to start listing the kinds of lawbreakers and rebels. It is made for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders. There is condemnation right up there with murder, and the slave trade is equal in Paul's eyes as far as what the law shows. Wickedness, 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 okay? Let me give you two more here. Paul also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is going to say, look, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me know when you get there by saying, Amen. Notice what he says, verse 21. Were you a, save, a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. But pay attention to this now, church. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So Paul not only condemns slave traders, he says to slaves, look, if you can get your freedom, do it. It's good to live as free. Let me give you one more passage here, and then we'll move on. Philemon I would say chapter 1, but there is only one chapter in Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. By the way, how many of you were with us the night that we went through the little book of Philemon in the cafe about three months ago? Okay. By the way, interestingly enough, in the book or letter to a man named Philemon, a church leader in the city of Colossae, he had a runaway name, uh, one, one runaway slave. I'm learning to speak, by the way, tonight, church, so just bear with me. He had a runaway slave named Onesimus. And by the way, Onesimus is going to be mentioned later in chapter 4 of Colossians. Okay? But notice what Paul says to Philemon about how he should treat his runaway slave that is now returning. Philemon, verse 16 and 17, he says about uh, Onesimus to Philemon, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. He is a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, Philemon, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Verse 17, so if you consider me, Paul, a partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. What does that mean? Would he welcome him as inferior or equal? Equal, okay? So this is the trajectory of Scripture. And we can talk about why it doesn't abolish slavery and all that. We'll get into that here in a moment. But I just want you to see that the Bible does not in any way, in any way, in any way, say this is okay. Are we all clear on that? I mean, I think we are. All right, let me give you, though, let's get into the context of the first century, Roman slavery. And you go, boy, this is, I promise we're going to get into... Something else here in a moment. Let me give you a couple things here about Roman slavery because our context in there is very different. Roman slavery had a different function, form, completely than what we know of as slavery in America. In fact, there were four ways that you became a slave in Rome. Now, in America, it was... Uh, you could track it all the way back up to the slave trade. Someone was kidnapped, they were brought over, they become a slave, their children are slaves, so on and so forth. But in Rome, not so. In Rome, there were four different ways that you could become a slave. Number one, you could sell yourself as a slave to pay off a debt. 
So if you owed someone, uh, let's say uh, you have a neighbor and you owe your neighbor something and you just can't pay it off, you could go to your neighbor and say, uh, <clears throat> Booty, listen, I, you know, I know I should have paid you back. I can't pay you back. Tell you what, could I be your slave to pay off the debt? And by the way, he just gave me a big thumbs up and a grin on his face, so that'll be fun. And, and, and here's what we'll do. Now, before they would agree to it, they would begin to negotiate terms. I'm going to be a debt slave, but here are the terms. How long must I work for you to pay off my debt? What kind of work will I be responsible for? Do you notice that it is a voluntary decision, not something that they're put into? So people would sell themselves into slavery. Number two, people would sell themselves into slavery to avoid poverty. So the first, so you have them saying, well, I want, uh, you know, I've got to pay off a debt. And then in other cases, I got no money. I got no money, honey. I need money. I need honey. I got, to, I got to get something. So you would sell yourself to a rich person and you would agree to be their slave if they would provide for you. Food, clothing, shelter. And here's the interesting thing. In many cases, smart masters would recognize talent in their slaves. And they'd say, wow, you, you are gifted. So they would then bring in tutors to train up their slave to give them greater intellect, education, position. In fact, in many Roman households, the slave would be better educated, more articulate, more socially well-versed than the master because the master understood that if he could invest in this individual, it would benefit his whole household. We have a couple of Old Testament examples of this, don't we? Joseph, in the book of Genesis, he was sold as a slave into Egypt, what happens? He is elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, running all of the kingdom for Pharaoh. There's another example, Old Testament, a man by the name of Daniel. Again, he was a slave, and yet he was elevated to work with King Nebuchadnezzar. So the second thing is you would sell yourself into slavery to avoid poverty, in many cases to be elevated beyond what you could get on your own. Those are the two good reasons that you might be enslaved in the Roman world. There were two bad reasons. So number three would be that you were a prisoner of war. Your side lost. You're now a slave. Fourth one, and this one breaks my heart, abandoned children were often put into slavery. So if in a Roman household, if there was a child that was unwanted because of any reason, maybe a birth defect, or maybe it's the wrong gender, or maybe the parents are just not able to care for the child, they would leave the child out, often in the public dump, and to, so the t- child would die from exposure. And slave traders would go through those areas, find abandoned children, and if they were little boys, they would be sold off as gladiators, soldiers, or slaves. And if they were little girls, they'd be sold off as slaves or prostitutes. So you could sell yourself to pay a debt. You could sell yourself to avoid poverty, prisoner of war, abandoned children. Do you notice that there's a wide variety of reasons that there would be slaves in the ancient world? And here's what's interesting. According to one sociological historian, up to one half of the Roman Empire were slaves. This was ubiquitous. Many people. Now, a couple things about this couple distinctives because of this. Number one, it was not race-based. It was multi-ethnic. 
You could be a Hebrew and enslaved. You could be a Greek or a Roman, a barbarian, a Scythian, an Egyptian, and you could have chosen to sell yourself into slavery. One of the consequences of this is there was no group that saw themselves as a slaved people. You could not tell a slave simply because of the color of their skin. You could not tell a slave based simply on the clothing they wore or their accent. Because in many cases, those doing business with you were slaves who had slaves who could buy themselves out of slavery and keep their own slaves. So it was multi-ethnic, all sorts of people groups. The second thing that was very different about Roman slavery is that it was often for a limited period of time, right? So again, I'm going to go work for this taskmaster booty, but you know, I'm getting my freedom one day. We agreed to it. So it was a limited time in many cases, not lifetime appointment. Number three, it was often um, a position that elevated you. Again, we talked about this, but you would find people who were higher educated who were slaves because the masters would say, I'm going to raise this person up. Does this make sense? And then the fourth distinctive was that it was often voluntary. Again, not in every situation, but in many, voluntary. Tear, there we go, E. I wish, okay, if someone wants to come up with a spell check whiteboard, you would make a mint for preachers everywhere. Uh, so I'm just saying, bank that went away. But it was often voluntary. I will offer to do this for a season, for a purpose. So do you see some differences between culturally what we think of when we hear this word and what Paul is talking to in his culture? Now, I'm not saying this is good. Don't hear me say that either. But I want us to have thoughtful eyes when we read God's word. And I want to, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think with me for a moment here. Uh, someone says, well, does the Bible ever universally abolish and, and, and just condemn slavery? N- no. There, there is no verse that just universally does that. I wish there were. I've looked for it. But here's the reason. Let me tell you why. I want you to think for a moment. There was a famous picture that came out not too long ago. It's one of those night sky pictures looking down on the earth. You know, when the world is black. And it was a satellite picture taken over North and South Korea. How many of you have seen this picture? You know the one I'm talking about? Pitch black. South Korea is lit up like a Christmas tree. North Korea... The palace is the one bright spot in the entire country. My question to you, if Paul or if you were writing to a group of believers in North Korea or communist China, how would you ask them to conduct themselves under their circumstances? See, we think in terms of 21st century America. Well, you rise up, you abolish it, you fight back. Do you understand? In some circumstances, the call of the Christ follower is to change a system if they can change the system. But regardless of if you can change the system, Paul's greater concern is not simply to change the system, but to be changed in the system, regardless of where we find ourselves. 
that no matter where you are or I am, the bigger answer is not, well, this is unjust, I've got to change it. The bigger call from Paul is you and I should be Jesus regardless of where we find ourselves. Amen? That's it. So now this starts to come back to, well, it's all about Jesus. Do you see where we're going now? So, this is the ancient world. He gives specific instructions to slaves and to masters. What does this have to do with us now? Well, let's talk, let's talk practically for a few minutes here. The practical implication here is not a master-slave relationship, although for some of you, you're going to feel like you're enslaved with what I'm about to show. But this relationship for us is going to be more between employers and employees. This is actually a very practical passage for your work life and for mine. Because if this word from Paul applies to those in slavery, how much more ought we to have a similar or better attitude since we get to choose where we work in many cases? No one's putting a gun to my head to work here. By the way, I would work here for free. Don't tell the elders, though, because I like being able to give my kids food, okay? So, with that said, let's sort of talk through this, and I want you to see some things. Let's get real practical, and let's talk about you, because here's the deal. The Bible is not simply theoretical. It is practical. If it does not help you on Monday, or in this case, on Thursday morning, then we do not need to mess with it. But this is so practical, I want you to see what he has to say. There are three what I think of as real high-level practical things from what Paul says. Look at verse 23 and 24. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. By the way, stop right there. Any half-hearted workers that you know of? Anyone who just sort of comes in a few minutes after they're supposed to and leaves a couple minutes before. Anyone that you know who, when they get there, they're, they're just sort of halfway present. Whatever you do, do it all with your heart. As working for the Lord, that's the Greek word kurios. It's actually the word for, um, you could use it to talk about a Lord-master, a human relationship. But whenever you see uppercase Lord, that is Paul's unique way of speaking of Jesus Christ. By the way, a little side note, when you read your Bibles, uh, sometimes people say, well, why doesn't Paul call Jesus God? Why doesn't he specifically always just say Jesus is God? Well, the reason is, is in the early church, this is, this is free, this has nothing to do with this, but you need to know this. In the early church, they were very concerned about not confusing God the Father and God the Son. Both, they believed, were God, rightfully so, but they wanted to distinguish between God the Father and God the Son when they were talking about things. So, you'll notice the New Testament writers rarely refer to Jesus as um, it, with the God word, usually they will use the word Lord, kurios, and that is their way of identifying Jesus as God, okay? So that's the title. So he says, you and I are working not for a human master, but ultimately we are working for God. Now look at verse 24, the second half of it says this. 
since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So here's the first thing, really practical. You need to know that God cares about your work. God cares about the work you do, that you are there not simply to get a paycheck, but to be a productive person using your gifts and your talents to cultivate the world and to demonstrate the goodness of God where you are. In fact, um, one of the coolest things that Martin Luther ever did Martin Luther, not King, but the original Martin Luther, 16th century reformer, he said something that was so incredible. It really brought the ethic of work back. He said, back in the day, there was this idea that if you were in church work, you were up here. And if you were everyone else, if you like worked in the fields or in the bank or anywhere else, you were sort of down here, that your work was not quite as important as those of us who get paid to be righteous, right? And so, I mean, he said, but that's not the case. He said, all jobs are sacred, they are dignified, they are a way to express God's goodness in your world in a tangible way. In fact, Martin Luther, I love one of the things he talked about, he said, whether you work in a church or you're sweeping a floor, you are a minister in what you're doing. Think with me back. In the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. And And we're told that the earth was formless and void. The word there is chaos. The Hebrew word literally means it was chaotic. How many of you have ever entered into a room in your house where children have just left? There's this pile of stuff, maybe some dirt, maybe some smoke, maybe stuff you don't really know what it is. It's like off the periodic chart. You can't identify it. And it is chaotic and void of value. You come into this place. It is tohu vobohu, the same word used in the original moment of creation. And yet, what does God do with the chaos, with the disorder? begins to organize it, to order it, to cleanse it, to fix it, to give it meaning and purpose. Then he says to man and woman, I want you to subdue the earth, to cultivate it, to build it up, to create wonderful things, figure out creative ways to make better food. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. To find creative ways to get the ore out of the ground for metal that one day people will figure out how to make computer circuits and microchips and computer processors. And so that we have things like air conditioning and television. I want you to cultivate this world, he invites us into the divine process of creation and reclamation. Understand, when he says to you and me that you get to work for him, we are joining him in the betterment of the world, regardless of your boss. Isn't that good news? In fact, think about this. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, give us This day, our daily, what's that food substance, family? Bread. Have you ever thought about the process by which we get bread? 
For me, if I want bread, I go to the kitchen. I open the fridge. I pull out the bread. Or I go to the counter. I pull out the bread. And there's this magical, clear plastic thing that holds bread. And I'm convinced it just was there from all time before. And it's just there. And then my wife says, no, I bought it. And so I think, okay, she somehow got it. No, have you thought about the process of getting bread? It starts because there's someone who has a field. And they take that field. And what do they put into the field? Seeds. Then what do they do? They water that field. Now, wait a minute. How do they get water to the field? Have you ever been by one of those massive fields out when you're going maybe through um, the Midwest? Lindsay's from Indiana. We go through these massive places with all sorts of crops, just as far as you can see. And they would have these long pipe-like things with wheels on the sides. And you'd see them slowly rolling and water's coming down. Have you seen these before? Well, how do they get that to water the fields? Well, you see, there's someone somewhere who is assembling the wheels onto these massive pieces of metal. Well, wait a minute, where do they get the wheels? Well, you see, there's someone else who is getting the wheel and getting the rubber, and you kind of work your way down. Well, where do they get the rubber? Well, as I understand it, and I may be wrong, so correct me later if I am, you get rubber from petroleum. Where do you get petroleum from? Well, there are people who are digging wells for oil. Okay, so let's get back to our field. So now we've got water. Now we have to cultivate it. So you get fertilizer. I'm not going to ask you, where do you get fertilizer? Because we're going to get all sorts of different answers. And this is church. But you put fertilizer on it. Then you cultivate it. You let it grow. And then you've got to harvest it. How do you harvest it? Well, you get these big machines. Where did those come from? Huh? <gasps> So you've got people who are engineers and mechanics and people who understand technology and the wiring of things and combustion engines. And so you kind of work your way back to produce just a machine that will cultivate and collect the wheat. And then you get the wheat, but now it's got to be produced into a form that can be usable. So it goes to a factory, it goes to a plant, it goes to a place where it's refined. Then the flour, by the way, where does the plant come from? And then the flour is used. It's mixed with milk. Where does milk come from? Oh, now we're going to talk about the dairy farmer. And we're going to talk about where the little calf came from and how the calf was cared for and where the food for the calf came from. And then you're going to take the milk and the bread or the, the wheat and you're going to add it in with some salt and maybe with some yeast so it rises and you mix all these things and then you have to put it in an oven again where does this all come from how many people came to make the ovens and the plant and the place and now the bread is made it's now packaged well someone came up with an idea to take plastic and put it over bread And then that is put on vehicles that are driven by real people around the country to get it to your store. And at your store, there are real people who are managing, who are up early in the morning to stock the shelves, to make sure the temperature is just right in the cool areas, in the warm areas. And then you buy it. Well, how do you buy it? Well, you do it with money. Where did that money come from? Oh, there's a whole group of people who've helped us come up with money. And the paper that we use for money. And so you give them some of this green stuff to get some of the brown stuff to go home and put it in a sandwich. Now let me ask you a quick question. Yeah, you weren't out. Me too. (laughs) That's just to get a piece of bread. Tell me, whose job in that process is irrelevant? 
You walk by. Let me take you to one person in particular. You go into that factory where the bread is being made. And you, if you're like me, you want to make sure that that factory is clean as a whistle. Because I don't want anything in my bread other than for what goes into a good piece of bread. So now you've got a group of people who no one notices, no one sees, sweeping the floors, cleaning the utensils, fixing the vats, making sure it is clean. Whose job is irrelevant or undignified in this process? This is God's good gift for cultivating the world. And I don't care what your job is. If you sit behind a desk or if you are sweeping a floor, you are a part of a divine calling bringing dignity, worth, value, and ultimately raising the standard for all people, not just God's people. This is what it means to subdue the earth and to bring about good things. God says, your work matters. I care about it. This is why when you get up tomorrow, I don't care what your job is. It is a gift from God that you get to say today, I am contributing to the kingdom of God and people who will never meet me will see the fingerprints of my God in my work. Do you see what's going on here? This is why he says, remember, your master is not your real master. You have one in heaven who is giving you this work, who's giving you dignity. And by the way, if you are working for God, then you are in the process of doing something beautiful and divine. So that's the first one. And we've got two more to go. Let me give you two more real fast here. These will be faster. Number one, God cares about your work, church. Have we made that point clearly enough today? Are we good? Number two, though, let's just get real practical. Let's talk about those of us who receive a paycheck from another person. He wants you to know that if you and I are our employees, we are to be an employee with integrity. Be an employee with integrity. Verse 22 says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes are on you. And don't do it just to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the, what's that word, church? What's that word, church? Lord, again, so with sincerity and working for Jesus Christ himself, here's what he is saying. Have you ever met someone who is a bad employee? Don't raise your hand. Don't nudge the person next to you. You understand that he's saying your work has dignity, but one of the ways that we demonstrate that we are God's people is we work with integrity no matter what that job is. We don't show up late and leave early. We don't quickly turn off Facebook when the boss walks by our desk. We don't pretend that we're working harder. In fact, I had a friend who worked uh, one of his first jobs. He was not a Christ follower at the time, so he, he actually lied on his application, and he put a much younger or much older age than he really was. He was sort of a big guy. He had a beard when he was like three years old already, so he, was, he looked bigger and all. And so he started work down at the docks of this particular city in which he lived at the time, and they were, they were loading and unloading things. And he said, there was a guy 
who would sit on the forklift, he would never leave the forklift, period. There may be things over here that had to be loaded on it. He would drive the forklift right up over to the spot. He would then get his beer out. You say, he was driving a forklift? Oh, yeah. And he'd just do this until someone would finally go over, load it for him. Then he'd move it over. But he'd, and, and if you didn't load it, he'd just blow his air horn at you. He wasn't going to work hard. That wasn't his thing. Here's the reality. If we are men and women of Jesus Christ, then we work with integrity. Not because our boss is watching. Not because we're going to get a raise. Not because of any of that, but because we say, I love my Savior Jesus, and he was the perfect servant. You remember the night before Christ died. What does he do, family? He washes his disciples' feet. He takes the role of a servant, and he does it without being asked. Because he says, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then the third thing, to the masters, he says this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. By the way, do you notice, is your, are both masters in that text uh, in your testament, are they both uppercase M's? Do you notice that? It's the exact same Greek word at both points. You may have an earthly master, little m, but you have a heavenly master, big M. So you treat your employees the way that your master has treated you. So he would say to employers, if you're a boss, if you have people under you, maybe you're not the big, big, big boss, but you're head of a department or a team or you have those who report to you. He says basically this, care for your workers... As Christ cares for you. Care for your workers as Christ cares for you. What does this mean? He uses a couple words there. He says, treat them with, he, he says, treat them rightly and with fairness. Now, by the way, fairness. Let's just talk about sports for a moment here. Anyone here like sports? Yes, okay. Well, pretend you do for a moment. You go out and you watch a football game. By the way, any Tennessee fans in here tonight? Any uh, Alabama fans in here tonight? We'll have a prayer meeting later. And so you have Tennessee. But you see a game, right? Okay, Tennessee and Alabama. Rivalry. They're coming up head to head. You have the officials out there. If it is a fair official, he will call the balls He'll call the fouls. He'll call everything the way that it's supposed to be. The same for both teams. He's not going to show partiality to one over the other, correct? To be fair in the rules is to treat them as equals. One is not superior or inferior. They are equals. He is saying, you treat them. You treat your employees. You treat those under you with the same equality that Christ treats you. How does Jesus treat us, family? So when you and I have slacked off, did he come and thump you on the head and say, get out of here, you're fired? When you and I have done things that we're ashamed of, And by the way, I'm not saying that bosses should not fire people from time to time. They absolutely have to in certain cases. But I want you to understand the heart and the posture of God to you and to me has always been one of saying, I love you, I care for you. I'm going to pour into you so that you can become who you're supposed to be. 
He says, you treat others in the way that Christ has treated you. And we could go through some examples of that tonight, but I think here's the lesson more than anything else. We've talked about a lot of things. I just want to end on this. Understand that Paul's heart here more than anything else is that Christ would be made much of in every venue of life. If you go back to verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, look, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name and for the name and through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying it's all about Jesus. What you do matters. When people look at you, they will determine the validity of what you say based on how you live. And then he's going to say in the next few verses, verse 2 through 6 of chapter 4, which we're going to get into Sunday. I'm geeked out about it. It's going to be good. But in those verses, he is going to say, listen, you pray now, regardless of your station, you pray that we have opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with others. By the way, I'm in chains because of it. His point is not where you are, but where you are, you live as Christ in your circumstances. If you're a boss, you live as Jesus in your circumstances with those under you. If you're an employee, you live as Jesus in your circumstances with those above you and around you. And maybe, just maybe, we won't get another paycheck only. But we'll gain for ourselves another brother or sister for eternity because of how we work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Bible, for these words from Paul. I thank you that we have been given encouragement from him to know that what we do matters to you, that all work, no matter the job, has dignity. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in the workforce that they would remember that tomorrow morning when they get up, when it's still dark outside, when they get ready to go, when they walk into that office, when they face that that employer who may be unkind and unfair at times, that they say, today I am going to work for Jesus. And as a result, I'm going to do it with joy. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who are managers and bosses. May they tomorrow walk into their offices with people who don't work as well as they ought to at times, who are frustrating, and say, today I'm not managing People, I'm getting to manage people who love Jesus, or maybe they don't, but I'm going to manage them well because my boss, Jesus, has loved and managed me well. And I pray that in all this, we wouldn't miss the point that it's about representing you so well that others would know Jesus personally. It's in his name that we pray tonight. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week, and I'll see you on Sunday.